Coming up, football, college football, basketball, next. This episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is presented by State Farm. If you've ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened, your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor. State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Monopoly Go. It's halftime and the scoreboard's not looking good. You're not sure you can pull out a win? That's when you say to yourself, it's time to get back in the game. Pull off some bank heists and take as much of my friend's money as I possibly can. That's right. The hit mobile game, Monopoly Go, lets you compete with your friends to be the biggest tycoon ever. I might do this with my high school friends. We used to play Monopoly all the time. It's the Monopoly you love, but on your phone anytime with tons of new twists, including leaderboards to compare your progress. There's so much to do. Play on countless dynamic Monopoly boards. Make your friends bankrupt by smashing their landmarks with a wrecking ball. Charge other players rent for your iconic properties. Maybe you'll even play against me. I'm great at Monopoly. You can even work with your friends to crack open community chests and in tournaments to get extra rewards. Get back out there. Put on your game face. Download Monopoly Go. Now free on the App Store or Google Play. We're also brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network. Hope you listened to the Rewatchables on Monday night. We did A Bronx Tale. Have a very special one coming on Monday night. That's one of my favorite movies ever. Stay tuned for that. Coming up on this podcast, we got a lot going on. I brought Danny Kelly on from the Ringer to basically redraft the first 15 picks of the 2023 NFL Draft to try to figure out who the best rookies have been this year. And we talked a little about Dallas's bad injury look as well and what he thinks of the Seahawks. So that's first. Then our friend Van Lathan came on. Uh, I had to get some college football on the pod this year because I've actually been watching it. And uh, he came on to talk about five teams, five coaches that should be terrified that Deion Sanders is about to take his job. So we did that. And then last but not least, Howard Beck, who has just joined the ringer. He is um, somebody that has been in our orbit for a while, but now we get to finally work with him day after day. And he's an awesome basketball writer and a great basketball voice. And he's going to hop on and talk about the upcoming season and tell a couple Kobe Bryant stories as well. So that is the podcast. It's a good one. Let's bring in our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, Danny Kelly is here. We have a really fun gimmick coming up in a second. But right before we started taping, uh, Diggs goes out for the year for the Cowboys. Does What does this do in your in your mind for top teams in the league? Oh, man, that's a good question. I mean, it clearly, because their defense just was so dominant. He's such a good player at creating turnovers. Um, definitely hurts them. I still think they're still up there with uh, among the best teams, though. Yeah, it's just their defense seemed like, was the best unit of anyone's unit in either conference. Right. And I right. wonder how much that compromises it. But um, too bad, though. 
Poor Cowboys fans. Can't they have nice things? (laughs) Can we figure out a way to make ACLs indestructible? I I feel like science should be caught up with this by now. We should at least ban them from practice ACL tears. It could only like happen during a game and practice is not allowed. (laughs) Anyway, sorry to the Cowboy fans out there. All right, we are doing a gimmick. This is the earliest anyone has ever tried this gimmick during a season. We're not even in week three yet. But I asked you to do a redraft of the top 15 picks of the 2023 draft. And the reason I asked you is because this was a goofy draft to begin with. You do our draft guide for us. You're one of the hosts on our draft show. We knew this was going to be a weird draft. But now as I watch the rookies unfold and who's jumping out at me on TVs, it struck me like I have no idea what the order would be. You have (laughs) baby Rhino fell to the Eagles at nine. He would clearly be higher. I think Stroud would go over Bryce. I think Christian Gonzalez would go way higher. You mm-hmm. could even argue the running backs. Everybody was much maligned at 8 and 12. Those might be higher. So I'm just unleashing. And what we're going to do is I'm going to say who made the pick in April mm-hmm. and what they did. And then you're going to say what you think they would do if they could have a redo right now heading into week three. So the first pick is the Carolina Panthers who took Bryce Young. They traded into this pick. There was a lot of Bryce Young, Stroud, who's it going to be? And then they settled on Bryce Young. Yeah. What do you think the Panthers would do if they could redo this? Uh, that's a great question. So I'm I put CJ Stroud. I think at the end of the day, if we're being totally realistic, teams are pretty stubborn and like to stick to their takes. So maybe they take Bryce again. But if if I were them, I would take CJ Stroud. I mean, what I, what we've seen from him through a couple of weeks is really really encouraging. Uh, he was my number one quarterback anyway, so this makes a lot of sense for me. Just go with Stroud. He's he's looked like to me the big thing is like it doesn't look too big for him. It doesn't look too fast for him so far. The Texans have not been on my TVs a bunch these first two weeks, but uh, yeah, I've been yeah. couldn't help but notice all this CJ Stroud praise. Who, who I'm going to check him out a little more carefully this week because I like that Jacksonville spot. They're getting a lot of points, and I, I think that's going to be an interesting game. What QB does he remind you of? Um, that's a good question. I think Dak comes to mind. Just kind of like a he, he's poised. He's accurate. He's like a ball distributor. I mean, he's got actually his receivers have been a lot better than I thought. Like Nico Collins looks like he could be a future star. You know, Robert Woods is in there kind of just doing his thing. Um, and Tank Dell, the rookie, the like 150 some like pound Del. rookie, yeah. rookie looks really exciting. So they've got some guys there. Um, and I think just mostly Stroud, it, to me, again, it doesn't really feel like the game is too fast for him. He's doing a, a few things out of structure, but. They've asked him to throw a lot. I think he's second in the NFL in, in pass attempts right now. Um, and I thought he's acquitted himself really well. He, he looks like he, to me, is going to be a longtime starter. Dell was getting some uh, fantasy waiver wire action in all of my leagues oh, yeah. this week. Oh, yeah. People were jumping on that one. Okay, Houston second. He just took C.J. Stroud from them. They're devastated. Yeah. Yeah. What do they do if they, if they had that second pick? I mean, you think they just take Bryce and like, screw it? No, I put Richardson, Anthony Richardson. Even though I, I kind of hate it for Anthony Richardson, I wanted to keep Anthony Richardson on the Colts because I think their coaching staff is really just perfect for him and their yeah. system and their scheme and everything. Um, but I mean, if we're being honest, what we've seen from Richardson over a couple of weeks is, again, very, very encouraging. This game doesn't look too fast for him. You know, he's obviously going to be really dangerous with what he can do with his legs. Um, and, you know, he's the way that he gets the ball out, he avoids sacks. I think all of this is super encouraging. He, he does not look to me like, a guy that was, you know, basically touted as super raw and super inexperienced. Like he doesn't look to me like that type of guy. I think, you know, the future is really bright for this guy. Um, you know, if he can stay healthy, of course. There's a physicality slash um, air to him that I like. Yeah. Hard to explain. I don't even know what the word is, but 
Uh, it reminds me a little of Anthony Edwards in basketball where he just has this look physically like I'm ready to run over whoever I need to run over. Yeah. That's why I was such a bummer when he got concussed in week two because that oh, seemed I know. like that was a possible breakout game for him. I think that was a freak thing. I'm hoping that was a freak thing. It wasn't necessarily an indication of, you know, how he plays or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's definitely concerning. You don't want to see him getting hurt so quickly. All A couple of these rookie quarterbacks are already hurt. So um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, he was the most athletic quarterback of all time, literally, at the combine. So, <laughs> right. Yeah, he's fun. We're seeing well, that, their, yeah. Their O-line was a little banged up this week, so um, maybe this is a good game for him to skip if Minshew ends up playing. Yeah. Houston's also on the board with the third pick. They took Will Anderson, who I think people have 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 liked. I think he's, yeah. been, uh, he's been a thumbs up, but do you think he would go third if we did a redraft? I do. I put I put Will Anderson here. I know that's not like the most exciting thing ever, but I think they obviously were very convic- convicted on him. They obviously, you know, moved up really far to get him. Big trade. Yeah. Yeah. They gave up a future first for that. So, you know, obviously they gave they, up a 12, a future first, and then one yeah. other was like a second or third, but it was a lot. Yeah. So I think they they would stick with this pick. I mean, he's a he's been really good. He's been really disruptive, getting a lot of pressure. He just looks the part. He you know, he passes the eye test. So I think they would stick with that one. You liked him in the draft guide, right? I remember you yeah, were more bullish sure. because he was a pretty, he turned into a pretty polarizing guy. Like, yeah, I think, who is this? What is he going to be? I think there was some worry that he was a little light, you know, like not like it, not on the same level as some of the, the you know, top tier pass rushers of the past. He's not quite as big as like a, um, you know, some of the guys we've seen, like a Bosa or whoever. Um, yeah. And, but I think his explosiveness and just overall skill set, he's good against a run. He can, you know, get after the passer. I think the way that the Texans have been utilizing him so far, at least from what I've seen, is pretty exciting. Kind of letting him go out and, and, you know, pin his ears back a little bit. And so, yeah, he's looked really good so far. The Texans are definitely a little bit better than I expected team. Yeah, right. For sure. And yeah. The Bears are exactly frisky. as bad as I thought they might be, <laughs> team. But the Texans are, yeah, a little friskier. I thought... Yeah. They'll at some point, and I'm not sure when over the next five weeks, ruin a three-team parlay or tease. They're yeah. just going to demolish it. And nobody's going to see it coming. All right, here's where it gets interesting. Yep. You just took Anthony Richardson from, and I think I agree with your top three, by the way. Okay. Uh, unless you wanted to throw baby Rhino in there for uh, for Houston. But all right, so Indy on the clock. They took Richardson, which turned out great for them so far. Yep. Now he's off the board in this redraft. Who would you have there? I think, so this is going to be controversial, I'm sure. But uh, for the content, Bijan Robinson. I, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously they've ruined their relationship with Jonathan Taylor. That, yeah. that ship seems to have sailed. I don't think that they're going to, it doesn't feel like they're going to rekindle that, at least, you know, to the point where they're going to re-sign him. Um, I don't know, man. For what I've seen from Bijan Robinson, he looks to me like he's the best running back in the NFL. He looks like, and, and by the way, the way they're using him as a receiver, they're, they're splitting him out, running him all over the field. This is like, he is actually doing the things we always talk about running backs doing, but yeah. then it never happens. Like Bijan Robinson is actually like a positionless player. He's like Debo Samuel, but like more explosive. And so, um, you know, obviously that's me rationalizing taking him so high, but just the way that he, just how explosive he is, if they don't have uh, Anthony Richardson or CJ Stroud there, I don't think Chris Ballard is going to take a guy like Bryce. So yeah, well, just, from, from what we've seen from Bryce too, it's a little, little worrisome, a little shaky so far. Like so it, it, there's a is he too small question that I think could be legitimately asked. I couldn't agree more wholeheartedly on Bijan. Yeah, I know it's just idiotic to take a running back that high, but <laughs> he yeah. he leaps off the TV. I don't, 
I don't know if he's the best running back in the league. He might be, but he's certainly the most exciting. I mean, it just feels like any screen pass, any handoff, any sweep, you're surprised when he gets tackled. He seems like what it's like to watch an awesome college football running back, but he's doing that at the NFL level. And I I think the Packers are good. Like, he kind of tore him up a little bit. And um, they're clearly, their only concern is they don't want to give him too many touches, too many carries. They don't right. want to put right. too much of a workload on him. So he's always around like, what, 12 to 15 carries, maybe a couple screens. I'm yep. with you. I I think if you're going to say who's the most talented running back in the league, he would be the first pick, right? Who, yeah. who else would you even put against him? I mean, Chubb, but that right. obviously out. changes things now. And so I, I don't know. I mean... Um, and Chuck you know, doesn't didn't catch the ball like he's not a pass receiver threat. I don't right. think like Bijan is. Bijan, I mean, I, look, as you said, Bijan can turn into Debo Samuel out of nowhere. I think the only guy that really at this point compares to him is Christian McCaffrey, but they're not right. even like really stylistically that similar. I, I don't know. It's like Christian McCaffrey's a little smaller and he's more versatile as a receiver. Bijan is just he's like two hundred something twenty pounds and uh, you know raw power and the way that he moves is so unique. I feel like it, you could see that on the first run he had in the NFL where he just yeah. cuts, he just cuts on a dime. I've been kind of comparing him to like the top gun line where he's like, I just hit the brakes and let him fly by. But he does yeah. it so like subtly you see, you see defenders run past him like three or four times on one play. You know what I mean? And so he's just, he's just incredible. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. Of course the Colts could have taken Jalen Carter here, but I did it for the content. You know, I did it for the whole Jonathan Taylor storyline too. I love it, and I completely support it. All right, so you got your beloved Seattle Seahawks, or we're on the clock at yeah. five here. They took Witherspoon, the cornerback, mm-hmm. in the first iteration. Who do they take, in your opinion, now? This is already a discussion in Seattle. It's already heating oh. up. It's already oh, it's, heating it, up. On, is it on the text threads? It's already on the text threads. I think most people are still pretty bullish on Devin Witherspoon. I think he's looked, he looked good in the first game they played this last week, but I'm, I'm going with Jalen Carter here simply because he's been... Like yeah. one of the best interior defenders in the NFL, period. Not even among rookies. Like one of the best interior defenders in the NFL. He looks unstoppable. So obviously, I think the the reason the Seahawks didn't take him was not necessarily related to football at all. You know, I, I'm guessing they probably had a really high grade on him from a football point of view. But they, you know, internally, what I've heard is that, you know, they just wanted guys who were really, really hardcore competitors. And, and that was kind of some of the question marks that you had about Jalen Carter coming in. And he landed on a team that has a really good support system. Some of his former teammates there. So hopefully it works out for him there. But I think just on the football field, man, he would be really very helpful for what the Seahawks are trying to do because their defensive line has not been, you know, outstanding so far. Well, with the legal issues he had, five was aggressive. Mm-hmm. Nine was like, all right, this is ridiculous. Don't let him you fall. Take him. Yeah. So it was yeah. somewhere between five and nine. I think five, they would have taken some heat for a couple minutes. And then by, what, June, all the Seahawks fans were like, holy shit, we got Jalen Carter. <laughs> right. Uh, he, exactly. The thing that's crazy about him, he's old school in the sense that, because uh, the Pats went up against him week one, and then I watched week two with Minnesota, obviously, but he just, mm-hmm. he takes up space. He's oh, one yeah. of those guys that... It's a big body. It, it's just like putting a building in the middle of the, <laughs> in yeah. the middle of the game. Yeah. And then just things move. The offensive line just kind of moves backward and he's involved. So you almost can't even see half the stuff he's doing. It's just a brute force thing. Yeah. I think the fact that they got him at nine is just an outrage. It really is upsetting. <laughs> an it really outrage. Is. Yeah. It's upsetting. Like, I wish Arizona had taken him. <laughs> Why did someone uh, else take him? Yeah. That, I yeah. Think that's like thing. Arizona, he's sitting there. Arizona's here at number six. They took Paris Johnson, the uh, yep. who was considered to be the best tackle in the draft. 
What do you think they do if they have a do over there? I mean, I think they would still be happy with Johnson, but I put I I put Christian Gonzalez here. I think. Oh, are we, are we doing this now? Yeah, let's do it. Oh, I mean, let's he was do it. He was my number seven player coming into the draft, and I feel pretty confident that I was on the right side of that story in terms of just like how we've what we've seen from him so far. You know, he looks like you know physically, athletically, uh, you know, schematically. He's so versatile, so fast, so explosive, so big, so long. Like he has everything you want from a corner. I don't. I still truly don't really understand how he fell to the Patriots where he fell. So I don't know, man. He to me, he looks like a difference maker, a guy that can really change your your defense. And when we've seen things from like Sauce Gardner, what he did, what he's done for the Jets' defense, like I don't know why he wouldn't go higher. It's been one of the great gifts of my last couple of years. I mean, I'm still recovering from the Mookie Betts trade. It's going to take forever. So it's just little victories that are trying to make me feel better. But Gonzalez going to 17. I mean, he was, he took on Tyreek a few times, especially in the second half in that Sunday night game and stayed in the vicinity of him and got a big interception. And um, he's one of those, like, you kind of know it right away. You had it with Russell Wilson, ironically, in like uh, 2012, where you start hearing the buzz in like late June, July. The stuff starts coming in. The other players start talking about him, and he, and he's had all those check marks. To me, he reminds me of uh, of Rod Woodson when Rod Woodson was a cornerback in the early Rod Woodson days. Like mm. just like just a ridiculous athlete. He's yeah. always in the right spots. He's really competitive. And um, I would if you had to rank like who is the best type of player to have on a rookie contract, quarterback would be number one. Would you go left tackle or a cornerback, shutdown cornerback number two for yeah. what the price is compared to what the price is going to be when they're a free agent? That's a great question. Um, I guess probably tackle, but by a hair. Yeah, it, it, it it's kinda close, depen- right? It kind of depends. Tackle is just hard because he, he protects your quarterback. That's like yeah. the number one thing, right? Um, but I think corner, like I said, it can kind of change the whole complexion of your defense. I mean, look at, you know, Sauce right. Gardner, he, he can shut down the entire side of a field. You know, that t- that like really limits what the uh, the other team can do. And so I think obviously these are big impact players. They get paid like it. And like you said, it, like getting a guy on a rookie contract that can completely take take out like a number one receiver or shut down one side of the field is a massive competitive advantage. So um, I think you know it's bonkers yeah. about him. He turned 21 in June. Yeah. Like, I, it's not like he's like one of those like we had Kyle Duggar. You know, he was like 24 when he was a rookie. Right, right, right. Like he's the opposite of that. He could, you could argue he should probably even be in college another year. But yeah, they, they finally struck oil. And that's why it's really hard for me to give up on this Pats team because the defense that they added in the draft combined with what they already had, like it potentially could be an awesome unit, but the offense just can't stay out of its way and they make no explosive plays at all. Yeah. It's depressing. I don't want to talk about that. Uh, (laughs) Vegas is number seven. They took Tyree Wilson. Yeah. And people were confused when it happened. I think I do not see him going in that spot again. Who would you think nope. they would take? I know. I, saw, I think that I saw that. I saw the stat. Tyree Wilson has zero pressures so far. He has yeah, forty-seven pass rush snaps, which is tough. Um, I think he's going to have to. You know, he's going to have to learn how to kind of vary his attack and not just be a pure power rusher. But, but yeah. So I didn't have Tyree Wilson there. I this one was hard. I, you know, I considered putting Bryce Young here. Um, I think they're probably happy with Jimmy G though. And They're happy with Aiden O'Connell as a fourth rounder. That I, too, I like yeah. that dude. That's true. Yeah. Um, I put Devin Witherspoon. I, I think obviously yeah. that the the you know the jury's still out on him a little bit. He did give up a touchdown last last week on a flea flicker, so he kind of got out of position on a flea flicker uh, trick play. 
Um, but for the most part, he looked the part to me, you know, when they played the Lions. And so um, he was breaking up passes. He was like a tone setter type of player for them, which is exactly what you expect. I think the reason the Seahawks loved him is because he's just uber, uber competitive, tough, physical, a guy who's going to get his teammates pumped up on every single play. Like literally when you watch him, he even on the plays where he gives up a catch, he's like barking at the opponent. <laughs> he's right. like, he's just like an insane competitor, which I love. And I know the Seahawks love that. And so... I still think he's still a top 10 like type player. And I think, you know, obviously the Raiders could use some help in the defensive secondary. So is it fair to say we just dropped the level there from Christian Gonzalez to uh, Witherspoon? Like we're in like a tier two now? Yeah, I think so. I think this is, that was like sort of the blue chip type players. And then we get into some more question marks here. So yeah, Witherspoon, potential blue chipper, but you're not as sure. Like right. Gonzalez, you're more sure. Okay. Right. Number eight. Atlanta, you just took Bijan from them. Are you going to give them Jameer Gibbs? No, nope. I'm going to. This is where I'm going with Bryce. Bryce Young. I I considered. I, like I, I really didn't know where to put him. I think I considered. Uh, you know, the Raiders. I considered the Titans. I don't think Mike Vrabel is the type of guy who would take a five foot eleven, one hundred and ninety pound guy. I don't know. Maybe he would, but um, I don't know. The Falcons to me look like the type of team that would really work well for Bryce Young. Like they have a sports yeah. system in place. They have a great run game, which they absolutely love to depend on. They have a couple of really tall, athletic pass catchers and Kyle Pitts and Drake London, who he can like throw to. Obviously, the the skill player group is there is way better than in Carolina. I think that gives him a better chance. Um, I don't know. What have you seen from Bryce? Have you watched a lot of the Panthers so far? I watched. Uh, I actually watched some of both games because I had them in bets, and especially the Monday night game. I did not like how he looked on Monday night. No. But that's also your second start. You're on Monday night football. You have no weapons. Yeah. Uh, the Saints, I think, have a good defense. That was one of the reasons I love them, minus three. And of course, they ended up not getting the, uh, not stopping the backdoor cover at the tail end of the game. <laughs> but it, he just it looks like he has no weapons to me. And it's weird because I liked that Carolina team last year in the second half of the year. And I, I thought they had really found an identity as this like physical. Right. You know, Foreman was really good for them, and they would just kind of pound the ball and control the clock. And now Arnold. I don't know what they are. They have no <laughs> weapons at all, right? Yeah. They have like Adam Thielen. He's like, you know, almost my age. Um, and they, they don't have like that awesome running back. So I, yeah. I don't even know what they're supposed to be. I've never been a Frank Wright guy. So I, I do think he's in one of the worst situations you can be. I would not give up on him yet. I know. I'm, that's that's where I am. I'm I'm like, this isn't a situation that's quite as bad as like the Bears system or support system or whatever, but it's a little worrisome to me so far what we've seen. Um, Yeah, I agree. You know, and he's hurt already, so not great. Right. Okay, number nine is Philly, who you just took baby Rhino from them. So who do you think they take? So this was another tough one. I think they stick to the trenches. I gave them Peter Skaronsky, the offensive lineman out of Northwestern. He's been good so far. He had a 30 visit with them for the draft, so I know that they were at least interested in him. Um, Mm. I don't know. A guy that, this just to me feels like a a Roseman pick where it's like he has five position versatility potentially and yep. adds on to their offensive line, which is like a huge part of their identity. You know, he could play right guard, left guard, left tackle in theory, like right tackle, maybe even center. And so, yeah, I just think he's, you know, typical Eagles pick. Where Tennessee it's just like, likes him and he mm-hmm. missed, he got an appendectomy, appendectomy. You think he missed last week, but he's probably not playing this week. And it's one of the reasons I'm nervous about Tennessee mm-hmm. and Cleveland because. Yeah. Cleveland's defense looks incredible. I, I think it's actually a, a real thing. So if you're just pulling blue chip offensive linemen out of there, I don't like it. He, All right, I like yeah, that pick. He's a blue chip guy too, though, I think. I probably, I could have put him even earlier here, but yeah. 
So Chicago's at 10. They took Darnell Wright, who was another one of the tackles. You think they just run that back or not? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I think so. All I, right, to so me run that back for them. To me, they're probably pretty happy with that pick, which is the only thing they're happy about right now. I was going to say, like, <laughs> things we're happy about if you're the Bears. It's the shortest list possible. Yeah. Tennessee, you took Skaronsky from them. Yep. So what do you give them? Broderick Jones? You give them another tackle? What do you Paris do? Johnson's still on the board here. So I, oh, I, all right. I, I gave him Paris Johnson. I don't know for sure if he really fits their personality. Um hmm. But they did sign Andre Dillard in the offseason. So I don't, maybe I don't know what their personality or their identity is because he's more of a finesse guy. Um, Paris Johnson, I think right now is a really good pass uh, defender or sorry, a uh, pass set guy, but he's not as good of a run blocker. And so, you know, maybe he doesn't fit the Titans all that great, but I think he is the best tackle on the board here and they need offensive line help. Number 12, Detroit. Gibbs, they they run that back. Gibbs is electric. I think, yeah. Right? I, you disagree? I, no, I don't. I don't disagree at all. The re, here's what I did. I gave him Zay Flowers from Boston College. And oh, here, you moved him up. I here's like the it. reason why. I think Zay Flowers could do some of the same things Jameer Gibbs does for them, but he also gives them an outside threat, like with speed. I, I'm a little bit wow. worried. I'm a little bit worried about Jamison Williams. Um, I think Jamison Williams, obviously very talented player, but we have not seen anything from him yet. And he's like yeah. suspended for the first six weeks. I guess he's away from the team. Who knows what we're going to get from him this year at all. Um, and I think this is a Lions team that could really scheme up some fun ways to use Zay Flowers. And, and so basically I'm saying he could be sort of the Jameer Gibbs role, but also play on the outside, play all over the formation, give them that speed. I, I do love the Jameer Gibbs thing, though. Right, I would Zay Flowers start. at 12. That's a big win for Baltimore because they got him at 22. I'm with you. He jumps out of the TV. Yeah. He, he's just, he's electric. Really fun. I'm glad Lamar has him. Green Bay at 13. They took Lucas Van Ness, who I... I, I think it's been pretty spotty for them. Who'd you have I redo? I ran it back with Lucas You did, Van. okay. Yeah, I think, so he, from what I've seen, he kind of fits their um, prototype. He's big, strong, athletic, fast, versatile, kind of like everything they're looking for. I don't know, like I haven't studied him very closely yet, like on All-22 or anything like that, but the times I've seen him, like there was one play where he chased down Justin Fields in the open field. And I was like, okay, mm. this guy has something here. And so... Uh, yeah, I just kind of ran it back with them. I think he's he's fine. I mean, there's definitely a few other guys here that I could consider. I uh, I did consider Broderick Jones the tackle, yeah, just because of you know sounds like Bakhtiari just doesn't want to play on turf ever again. Maybe so that's kind of an wow. interesting wrinkle here. But um, but yeah, I stuck with I stuck with Van Ness. All right, we'll do two more. Pittsburgh's at 14, and the Jets are at 15. Pittsburgh took Broderick Jones. The Jets took Will McDonald, who was a healthy scratch last week. Yeah, so I'm guessing we're going to be redoing that one. Who do you have? I got, this is a curveball here. Jordan Addison out of USC. Not a curveball to me. I, okay. I think he's another one who looks like he's got it. By the way, this guy, Addison, won the Bolitnikoff catching passes from one Kenny Pickett uh, mm. a couple of years ago. Do the whole thing where you pair up your college quarterback with your college receiver, see if that helps. Obviously, the Steelers offense needs help everywhere it can get. Um, you know, the offensive line has been spotty. I don't even think Broderick Jones is playing yet. They, they don't really have him in at this point. And so getting, no, he, I don't think he started last week. I, I looked it up. He has four snaps. So, yeah. um, I don't know what's going on there exactly, but yeah, I think Jordan Addison gives them an immediate boost. Obviously with Deontay Johnson hurt, you know, he gets, gets in there. And then he, of course he has the chemistry built in chemistry with Kenny Pickett, who needs as I much help it. as he can get. So I love that one. I actually think this chargers Vikings game this weekend, we might be hearing from him. Yeah. I because can see that. <laughs> one thing you can do in the Chargers is throw over the top on them. I know. They've and, had uh, the worst Addison, defense. 
Yeah. Yeah. Addison enjoys that. All right. This will be fun. The last pick, just uh, like the Jets need another kick in the balls if you're a Jets fan, <laughs> but we're about to do it. They took yeah. Will McDonald, healthy scratch last week. Also 24 years old. I'd I'd never, I never the double red flag. I did not like that pick. He's also yeah, very skinny and light, and, and I don't know. So, so who do you have? I went. There, this is one of those picks where you could go a million different ways. I considered Jameer Gibbs since he was still on the board here, and then they were apparently interested in him. I went Jackson Smith and Jigba mm. from Ohio State. Pair him back up with Garrett Wilson. I feel like the the Jets quietly their their receiver core completely fell apart over the offseason. season. Uh, yeah. Corey Davis got hurt. They traded away Elijah Moore. Or sorry, Corey Davis got in. Uh, got he retired. retired. They traded away Elijah Moore. Um, I don't think Alan Lazard is a difference maker. They're like Randall Cobb is getting snaps. Like what is going on with this receiver core? They have they have nobody really past Garrett Wilson. I think Jackson Smith and Jigba, um, you know, pairing up with his old college teammate Garrett Wilson, that would be a lot of fun. That would be a big help for Zach Wilson. Clearly, um, you know, and then I, I like I think that one. The Jets just go get a different quarterback if it's not working out. I don't know. Who who for you has won the tight end, the Kincaid and um, Sam Laporta and Musgrave? Who's your favorite? Oh, and Michael Mayer. Who's yeah. been your favorite out of those four? I think probably Laporta, honestly. I think Kincaid was my favorite coming in. And it's not like he's done anything that's really disappointing at this point. He's playing. He's getting a lot of looks and he's already you know making plays for them. So that's saying something for a rookie tight end. Like I think I saw there's more rookie tight end catches in week one than like any other year before. Mm. So it's like, this is like a sort of a new era. Tight, rookie tight ends are going to come in and basically because they're slot receivers at this point. Um, but I would say Laporta has really looked apart. I mean, he's like, he looks like Kittle, like when he's out there. He's breaking tackles. He's just powering through guys. He's running after the catch. I mean, obviously there's the, the Iowa connection, but he looks like Kittle to me out there. And so I'm really excited about what he can do. What did you see? Your team played the Lions last week. What did you see from the Lions that made you either think they were a playoff team or maybe a team that we overrated? Um, you, I think you texted this to me. There's no difference between the Seahawks and the Lions. Like they I are did. the same team. Say, yeah, they're the same team. Like they they have they're like a plucky, good vibes team with like a really good offense, but a very spotty defense. I don't know exactly what to. To expect from either team, either of these teams' defenses, um, but offensively, the Lions to me are one of the most fun teams to watch. Like they, the way that yeah. they mix things up, the the skill players they have. Amon Ross St. Brown is awesome. Jameer Gibbs looks super electric. Uh, Laporte is a fun player, and I think Jared Goff honestly he kind of gets a bad rap for he had a couple of very bad seasons, but he's he's a very solid quarterback, kind of like in the same vein as Geno Smith. So to me, like you said, these are very similar styled teams. It feels like there's only one playoff spot for the two teams, and maybe it'll come down to that game, like <laughs> yeah. some sort of tiebreaker or whatever. But um, I'm with you. I did, I thought Detroit got too much hype. Mm. I thought Jacksonville got too much hype, and I thought the Chargers got too much hype. But I think Detroit roaring back and being a playoff team would be the least surprising out of those three. Yeah, the Chargers yeah. just seem like they're headed toward a they're coach firing, charger, something yeah. awful. Yeah, they're <laughs> just doing what they do. Yeah. Um, Wait, before we go, America's going to ask, like we did 15 people in a redraft, where's Puka, the greatest receiver of all time? Why did we leave him out? He's Don Hudson. Oh, man. I was so conflicted here. I, for real, I put him with the, the Lions at first just because he 
could play that sort of uh, Robert Wood style role with the Lions. That I think Puka yeah. is basically playing the, the Robert Woods role for the for the Rams right now, and he's like doing it incredibly. He has I think thirty five targets to start the season, which is absolutely unheard of. Um, so, but I, I don't know. At the end of the day, like realistically, I don't think he goes top fifteen. But I mean, he's clearly very good. He clearly belongs in the NFL. He's an amazing story. Yeah, he just looks like those Welker Edelman. Just He's just always open. Yeah. He catches everything. It doesn't matter if you're hitting him as he catches it. He still catches it. He's not like crazy explosive, but just like third and eight. He just seems like he knows how to yeah. get open. Just kind of like... I, a, I think he's for real. Keenan Allen style player. Like, yeah. Just gets open and, and catches the ball. So he's been awesome. Incredible. All right, Danny Kelly, we can hear you on the uh, Ringer Fantasy Football Show and we can read you on the ringer.com. Good to see you. You too. All right, Million Dollar Picks Week 3. Here's who we're staying away from this week. Vikings Chargers. It's in Minnesota. The line's like one, one and a half. And I really want to take the Vikings. I don't trust them. I don't trust the Chargers. It's a classic stay away. Colts Ravens. I was a little intrigued by the Colts plus eight and a half, but, uh, and Gardner Minshew. But uh, I just, I'm tired of losing money to the Ravens. Maybe they're just good. Maybe I just have to accept it and move on. The uh, Seattle-Carolina game, I kept looking at and trying to figure out with a parlay, putting Seattle, get, taking their money line, throwing it with some other teams. But then Andy Dalton got named the starter of this terrible Carolina team. And he actually dusted Seattle last year when he was on the Saints. So that scared me off. So we're going to cross them off too. But I do have some, some delightful picks for you for, for week three. I actually kind of like week three. First one, Falcons are plus three at Detroit. I don't think Detroit's defense is good. I like this Falcons team, despite uh, my Desmond Ritter fears. We're gonna, we just talked about how good B. John Robinson looks with Danny Kelly. Um, I think the Falcons can just run the ball, keep the ball. I think they have an identity. I think they think they're good. They like playing indoors. And I just think this is an either team could win game. So if I'm getting plus three, fantastic. Taking that. Packers are home for the Saints. And this line is only one and a half. And it's because the Packers have had a couple injuries. Watson seems like he's going to play finally this season for them. Aaron Jones isn't practicing. And, you know, the Saints, they're 2-0, and right? Well, let's look at that 2-0. and They barely beat Tennessee with Tannehill just completely falling apart. It took them three quarters to even get going against that awful Carolina team. And then they finally pulled away in the fourth quarter, but they have scored 37 points in two games. Good defense. I really like this Packers team. I thought they should have beaten Atlanta last week. And I like that Atlanta team too. Derek Carr on the road outside. I don't know if you saw Derek Carr against Carolina, but there was a couple moments where it was like, you guys actually have to bring in Taysom Hill here. So, I think this line is off. I think it should be Packers by three. And again, I like this Packers team. I like them to win that division. We're taking Packers minus one and a half. Patriots, Jets. I got to do it. The Pats are minus two and a half against Zach Wilson. It's in New Jersey. I don't think that matters because the Jets fans are so bummed out. Uh, I don't even think it matters where the game's being played. They're all going to be sad. Here's the thing with the Pats. If they lose this game, they're 0-3. If they lose this game... Real questions open up about Mac Jones, who has had 35 starts and has one, I repeat, one fourth quarter comeback. And that actually seems high because I don't even remember what the comeback was. He also has one game-winning drive and he has four pick sixes. And I'm on a lot of Mac Jones threads right now wondering, 
is he even as good as Matt Cavanaugh was when I was growing up? Um, this is, in my opinion, probably the biggest game of his career. He's played in playoff games. I get it. He's they, But this is like, if you go 0-3, you lose to Zach Wilson, it's done. If you're Belichick, you've owned the Jets. This is the one thing you've had other than all the Super Bowls and all the dominance in the AFCs. But deep down, you've owned the Jets and you've owned Zach Wilson. You've owned bad quarterbacks. You always know if Belichick knows if somebody's a bad quarterback when he talks about how he can make all the throws. This is a, There's some good Boston social media stuff about this. Um, if they lose this game, pack up the season and start tanking and start going for Caleb Williams. That's, that's what you got to do. If Belichick is as smart as, as we all think he is and know he is, you almost have to throw away the season and start thinking about how can we get the number one pick? Because if you can't beat Zach Wilson with the defense that the Patriots have, um, with all the plays they left on the field in those first two games, you can't cover minus three against the Jets. This is minus two and a half. Win by a field goal. I got to take it. I think Zach Wilson is an absolute affront to the quarterback position. He is the worst. He's the worst in the league in a league that has Justin Fields in it. So Pat's minus two and a half. That's, uh, we're grabbing that. And then I love this one. So this is one of those, you can't overreact to the first two weeks too much. You can overreact a little. Like I, I stared at Bengals minus three against the Rams for a long time. And ultimately, I just cannot get there from a fair standpoint with the Bengals. They have looked so bad in the first two games. I know Burrow's not healthy. I know their defense isn't as good and I just don't trust them. And if you give me that line before the season, before we knew Burrow got hurt, you would have guessed it was like Bengals by eight and a half. Now it's Bengals by three in a must win game and they're own two. And I can't pull the trigger on that. I just can't. But I can pull the trigger on the Steelers in Las Vegas laying two and a half. I think this is one of the gift lines of the year. The Raiders are terrible. The Raiders have scored 27 points in two weeks. And their defense stinks. Other than that, uh, they're doing great. Um, Pittsburgh has played two of the three best defenses in the week, San Francisco and Cleveland. Cleveland's dominant. They've been amazing. Um, the only great defense they haven't played yet is Dallas. But, you know, now you get to relax. You get to play this goofy Vegas team and finally, you know, get some first downs, get some drives. I still believe in the Steelers. I don't know why, but I do. And if I believe in the Steelers, I got to lay the minus two and a half. So that's the, that's the fourth one. And then last but not least, we didn't do a parlay in the first two weeks, but we're going to do one today. The parlay is plus 111 and it involves two alternate lines. Dallas minus two and a half against Arizona. All they have to do is win by three. Chiefs minus two and a half. All they have to do is win by three against Chicago. And then we're throwing Browns minus 184 as the third piece. And the reason we're doing that is because this line is three and a half. I don't trust Deshaun Watson and his hodgepodge running back post Nick Chubb committee to protect a three and a half to cover that. But I do think the defense is so good that they're going to win this game. The defense is unbelievable. They held the Bengals to six first downs. They kept uh, the Browns in that game against Pittsburgh, even though Pittsburgh had two defensive TDs. And I just think the Browns defense can win this game by itself. It's a little win-one for Nick Chubb. Vrabel always scares me, but from what I've seen from Ryan Tannehill in the first two weeks, I don't think he's ready for a defense like this. I just don't. I think they're, and Derrick Henry's hurt. He's limping around. They don't have Skaronsky, their they're, uh, first-round tackle. And uh, this just feels like a Browns defense wins the game. So that is my parlay. Plus 111. Browns minus 184. Dallas minus two and a half and Chiefs minus two and a half. I also kind of like on FanDuel, they have Sunday's lowest scoring game plus 650. 
for Browns Titans, but you know, defensive touchdowns, who knows? I always lose those bets. So I'm staying away. So we're doing those five. And then last but not least, the Luca Brazzi line, which I'm two and oh on these for the season, the line that just smells the fishiest. It just looks like it's wrapped in a bulletproof vest and it seems like a complete stay away. The Broncos. So they're at Miami and the Broncos stink. They've lost two games. Russell Wilson, who knows? He's on a time clock. This could be his last start ever. Miami's look great. Miami's, I think, the class of the AFC right now. That could change. But right now, if you're saying, who, what AFC team do you feel most comfortable picking for a Super Bowl thing? You, you'd probably say Miami. Why is this line only six and a half? Why are the Broncos only getting six and a half in Miami against the explosive Dolphins? The Broncos that just got torched by Washington last week uh, by all these, uh, you know, Brian Robinson, Sam Howell's running around. What what happened to them in that game? Did, does Denver just stink? Yeah, they probably do. Why is the line only six and a half? We're going to take the Broncos plus six and a half for 50K. And that is our last pick. I'll tell you this. I looked long and hard at the Commanders um, plus six and a half at home against Buffalo. And I just couldn't quite get there. But I thought that was enticing too. Anyway, here are the picks for week three. 200K on Falcons plus three. Packers minus one and a half. Steelers minus two and a half. Patriots minus two and a half. Parlay plus 111. Browns to win. Dallas and Chiefs minus two and a half. And then our Luca Brazzi game. 50K on Broncos plus six and a half. We were up $210,000 for the season. Those are the million dollar picks for week three. Step in action this NFL season with FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. That's $200 in bonus bets. Win or lose. You just heard all my million dollar picks. I have some, some fun news for you. We're going to be doing another same game parlay on Sunday with a boost for either the 1 or 4 p.m. window on Sunday. And I'm going to be tweeting that out either Friday or Saturday morning. So stay tuned for that. We hit the one last week with the Patriots. They boosted that up to plus 150 and it won. And I think I think like 1.5 million bucks FanDuel had to pay out. So let's try to keep the streak going. If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there's no better time to get in on the action. The app is easy to use and there's a wide range of betting options, including spreads, player props, overrunners, and more. Visit FanDuel.com slash BS and kick off the NFL season. FanDuel is an official partner of the NFL. You must be 21 plus and president select states. First online real money wager only $10 first prize required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. It's just what you need to sit back and enjoy the game. And they're also getting fans closer to the game than ever. You can win exclusive NBA prizes like courtside seats, signed memorabilia, and more. I love Michelob because of how light it is. It's only 95 calories with 2.6 carbs. You know what the perfect time for Michelob Ultra is? A little doubleheader, a little NBA doubleheader. Right? First half of the first game. I don't know. West Coast time, that's usually about Five o'clock, 5.30, perfect time for a beer. You can do it. Grab a pack to enjoy today. Learn more and enter for your chance to win at MichelobUltra.com slash courtside, LDA, 21 and up. All right, our friend Van Lathan is here. I've made him the unofficial college football correspondent of the Bill Simmons podcast. Yeah, yeah. I didn't do out a press release. It's just, you know, we keep it low. We keep it 
keep it easy here. Uh, as you know, I've been watching more college football this year. I jumped on the Colorado bandwagon. I've had a great time. It feels like that bandwagon is probably going to either crash or stumble this weekend, uh, would be my guess. But uh, I asked you to give me Van's top five, and it could be top five anything. I just said, give me a top five list that somehow captures the fact that you watch college football all day on Saturday from, when do you start? What is it? 12 straight hours? What is it? Oh, it's all day long. It's as much as I can possibly get. Waking up, early game, nine o'clock. I miss game day now because game day is like at seven o'clock or something. So I yeah. miss game day. Um, Wake up, work out, come back on the couch, rest of the day. Done. That's it. Do you have conferences? Like, how does this work when you're like a crazy college fit? Like, do you, is there games that jump out to you or you just go to whatever the closest game is? Or do you, because you're an SEC guy, is it like you want to monitor SEC? What do you do? So it's the games that are in the SEC. Uh, it's LSU and then whatever big games are in the SEC. So you can see the way the conference is shaking out. And then it is big games that tell big stories throughout the rest of the day. So uh, Saturday, I'm looking forward to, uh, Obviously, LSU um, versus Arkansas, battle for the boot. But also, you have Notre Dame versus Ohio State. Mm. You have Colorado and Oregon. You have a full slate, a big, big Saturday of games coming up on on um, on this weekend. So I'm looking forward to all of those, you know? Tell me about uh, how is Colorado looking before you do your top five. Hunter's out for a couple of weeks. This is the hardest part of the schedule. But yet, they always get counted out. I don't know. I am just just feel like they're going to be in the mix no matter what happens. They're just a frisky, feisty team. So it's tough, right? It's tough because, like you said, the Colorado bandwagon, right? What does the bandwagon consist of is the actual question. Does the bandwagon consist of people who are in for the Colorado experiment? Or does the bandwagon consist of people who are in for the Colorado run? So last Saturday, when it looked like they were about to lose in a game that they probably should have lost, when it looked like they were about to lose, I saw a whole bunch of people on Twitter being like, well, it looks like my experiment with college football is coming to an end. Mm. <laughs> and my question is, because there are tons of casual fans that are coming into the game because Dion is such a magnetic character. My question is, why would a loss eject you from the Colorado bandwagon? Like, Deion Sanders is at Colorado. This is his first year. It's a full college football season that goes from September on to the national championship game. Yeah. And I certainly don't think that there's anybody out there that believes they're going to get a 12 and 0 season from Colorado. So I'm kind of wondering that the bandwagon shouldn't lose any people. It really shouldn't gain any people based upon how well the team is doing. If you're there for what he's doing, then you should be there for what he's doing. You know, I agree with that. And the quarterback is incredibly fun to watch. Trudeau I think Sanders. that's what I've enjoyed the most. Um, I don't understand, like, I, you know, the draft list. I know college, it's hard to translate and stuff. But when I watch him play, he just feels like he has qualities that I would want as an NFL quarterback. Like, he's got incredible poise. He's really strong. He's fast. He makes good decisions. It's hard for me to believe that's not going to translate on the bigger league, you know? And well, yet, he's moving, I think there's some he, questions. Yeah, he's moving up some boards. I think the thing is, whenever somebody comes um, from um, what used to be uh, the one double A, but now the FCS. But for whatever somebody comes from the FCS and they move up, you want to see how they're going to adjust to the game uh, on the Power Five level, on yeah. the FBS level. And look, here's the thing: it's like 
for Shadur, the only thing he can do is continue to put good stuff on tape. Like, the reality is there have been players that have played down there in the old 1AA level and really been dogs. Remember? Remember Steve McNair? Yeah. There have always been guys. Scotty Anderson from Grambling. Those, those, those schools have put out a lot of players. I mean, you know, look at guys like, um, like Joe Flacco. Joe Flacco came from a one double A AA school, as it was called then, and drafted into the league. Now he was a bounce back, I think, from Michigan. I'm not sure, or from one of the schools like that. But you know, a lot of times those there's there's great talent down there. The question is whether or not Shadour Sanders is one of those guys, or whether or not he's just a guy that can operate a college offense to a high degree. But a 98 yard drive on prime time in front of two minutes left, everybody watching in a game where, like I said, your team hadn't played particularly dominant. I mean, if you don't like that, you don't like football, man. Did you see that the rating? I hate rating stuff for the most part, but I thought it was interesting because that game ended, it was like almost 11 o'clock our time on the West Coast and that game was ending. And it was still a million more viewers than any other game at any point in the day on Saturday. I wanted a reason to go to sleep. become a semi-phenomenon. I wanted a reason to go to sleep so bad, bro. I was like, look, State, are you guys going to pull off? I really thought when the tight end made that amazing catch and turned it upfield and scored that that would be a reason because I was, that was the end of my college football day. Like I had seen so many first day. Yeah, yeah. Me and Kalika did not move from the couch the entire day, but the game just kept you. It made you watch. It You couldn't have written a better script. Couldn't have written a better script. All right, what top five do you have for us? All right, I got the top five coaches that should be on Dion Watch. Now, let me tell you what I mean by this. What does Dion Watch mean? Dion Watch means coaches that might get their program stolen by primetime. <laughs> okay. I am not of the belief that Dion Sanders is going to be at Colorado for a 10 or 15 year run. I don't think that it's going to happen. How many, how many years do you think it's going to be? Okay, so I think he's got a four year contract. And I don't believe that Dion is going to be able to fight off offers from teams that are particularly in a couple of different situations. One situation is just a lot more money, a lot more college football cachet than Colorado has. Some of these schools out here are really, really rich and really dedicated to football. The second thing is in fertile recruiting areas. Obviously, now with the internet and private planes and all of that, it's a national recruiting game. However, it is a lot easier to win in college football when you have proximity to some really great players. Colorado, that area of the country, not necessarily an area with a fertile football base. Like, say, a Florida. Florida. They happen to have a, a few good football players come out of there from time to time. Texas, Louisiana. Yeah. If you're looking at places like California, like I think the call of that and so New um, Hampshire's out. New Hampshire's out. New Hampshire's okay. out. Maine is out. You know what I mean? Those places <laughs> are out. Now, Colorado has been a power before. They have been before. I'm not saying yeah. that they can't be done, but I'm saying I don't think Dion will be there for the long term. I'm one of those people. So okay. I, so your top five is top five teams that should be worried that Dion is kind of staring over their shoulder a little bit. Top five coaches. I'll start off at number five. Now, this is a this is a long shot for a couple of reasons. We're gonna get 
to oh, we're going from we're going from five to one to build up suspense. We're going from five this to one. This is great. This to build up working great so far. I'm having build, a good time. We're going from five to one. Five is Dave Aranda. Dave Aranda is the head coach of the Baylor Bears now. Mm. Uh, things are going bad for Baylor. If you don't know who Dave Aranda is, Dave Aranda was formerly the defensive coordinator at Nebraska, then became the defensive coordinator at my LSU Tigers, went down to Baylor um, and had almost immediate success turning Baylor's program around. If you know anything about Baylor's program, you know that you know, Baylor's program had some issues. <laughs> I would say so. <laughs> yeah, had some issues. If you had issues that lead to a documentary that's longer than two hours, you had issues. Right. And, you know, because of that, it was tough sledding down there in Baylor. He had a lot of chances to take a lot of different jobs. He took the Baylor job. Now mm. things aren't going so good. Why would Dion be interested in the job at Baylor? Texas. If Dave Aranda, Texas. Texas athletes. Texas athletes. Baylor is a team that over the last 10 or 15 years has been able to eke out a national identity for itself um, in a very football-rich state. Of they have course, a hoop, they're good hoops team now, too. Great hoops team. The entire sports program at Baylor is on the rise. And you're in Texas. Dedicated to football, dedicated to sports, Baylor could be something. The reason why Dion wouldn't go to Baylor, in my opinion, is because it's kind of a lateral move, right? Yeah. It's not one of the traditional powers that we're going to talk about for the rest of these places. It's not a place in the SEC. It's not a place where it, where football is in the blood. Not quite yet. Yeah, but, my counter to that one would be if you're going to Texas, go to Texas. Go to the actual Texas. There's another school. Okay. Are we going to number four? Number four. We're not quite to Texas yet. Number four is going to surprise a lot of people. Ryan okay. Day at Ohio State. Oh. Now, a lot of people might be asking me right now, Van, why would you have Ryan Day on this list? Ryan Day is 48 and six during this time at Ohio State. Uh, he's had them in the college football playoff. They lost in the national championship game. It was a blowout, 52-24 to Alabama. Um, they have been a successful college football team since he's been there. The only problem is that the chatter from inside the Ohio State fan base is not as high on Ryan Day as you would think that it is. One reason, Bill, is because he is one and two against Michigan. Oh, that can't one fly. One and that's Gotta not going to fly. Gotta, Gotta be, be Michigan. Michigan. The coaches before him, Jim Trestle and Urban Meyer, yeah, didn't lose that many games against Michigan in something like 18 games. Oh, no. Trestle was uh, 9-1 and one against Michigan. Urban Meyer was 7-0. and oh. When you combine that, plus the fact that Ryan Gay hasn't been a, a particularly good big game coach, there are some people who believe that if Michigan would have, that if Ohio State, excuse me, would have a down season this year and not get back to the college football playoffs, or if they were to lose to Michigan again, that there might be some people that would look to bring in a different regime there in Columbus. Here's the reason why that wouldn't happen. I don't think there's a culture fit there. I don't think Deion Sanders would fit in a super traditional college football power like Ohio State. He's probably a little bit too outside of uh, outside of the norm for them. It doesn't seem like that would translate that well in Columbus. However, good athletes look, in Ohio. 
good athletes in Ohio, some of the best. But I don't think that would work because I don't think that uh, the OSU tradition would have. And I also think that Dave's success would make pulling the trigger on him a little bit too early. All right. I liked it. I thought it was a good thought experiment, though. I enjoyed it. I don't see Dion in Ohio State. Just fundamental. It doesn't pass the sniff test for me. Don't see it. Okay. Number three is a really interesting one. And it's the worst nightmare for college football fans. Uh Uh-oh. This is the worst nightmare for college football fans. For me, the thought of this one keeps me up at night. Oh, no. Texas A&M. Ooh. This is the Texas who I was talking about. Um, Jimbo Fisher is in hell right now at Texas A&M. He's in hell. All right? They paid this man $100 million. And they just got waxed on national television a couple of weeks ago by Miami. Miami's coming out party was against Texas A&M. Texas A&M has one of the most talented rosters in the country. When you talk Mm. about blue chip composites, they're up there with the Alabamas in terms of the talent that they have. It just has not at all reflected on the field. Jimbo Fisher, who won a national championship at Florida State, just can't seem to get it going there at Texas A&M. And they're paying so much money for him. Okay, So you think Jimbo is rooting for Colorado State on Saturday night? I think Jimbo is rooting for any hotshot coach out there to fail. Because, <laughs> because any hotshot coach that's out there makes it more realistic that Texas A&M would make a move. He is on the hottest of hottest of hot seats. So what do we think of that fit for Dion? He's in I, Texas. He gets nice, nice crop of athletes. I think it's actually a perfect fit. I think it's a ridiculously perfect fit. I think mm. he would be in the SEC. He's got access to Louisiana, Texas, Oklahoma, all the neighboring places. Oh, yeah. And the one thing that would stop this from happening is $70 million. Jimbo Fisher has around that left Ugh. on the $100 million contract that Texas A&M gave to him. It is going to take a lot. And this is a rich school that has all the resources in the world, like literally brought in one of the most impressive recruiting classes ever. Actually, if you use the composite number, the most impressive recruiting class ever because of NIL, they can just pay more than anybody just about. But $70 million eating that, having to pay him that, and then having to pay Dion who if he's making 29 at Colorado is definitely not going to jump for anything less than $70 million. Mel Tucker got $100 million. So you're looking at a guy who probably wants that same type of money. That's a lot of money. A lot of money. Do you think college coaches should make that much? I don't see why not. I mean, what's that a year? I'm just trying to like, I think Jimbo got 10 years. 100 million or something like that. So it's like 10 million. If you're paying 100 million dollars for 10 years for Jimbo Fisher, it's almost like you have to have the guarantee that your team's going to be good for that amount of money. That's what you're paying for. Because you can't get out of it. Right. But then they're not that good. Right. Like how many coaches are, I don't know, it just seems like watching from afar, it seems like way more, much more of a crapshoot with college (laughs) coaches than it is in like, I don't know, football. Whereas like in football, let's say Brian Dayball, like pro football worked like college football and Brian Dayball had one good year and they'd be like, oh, the Browns have offered him $120 million to be the coach. I like Brian Dayball, but I also, we've, have, we've seen such a small sample size of it. 
So I don't know. It just seems, it just seems like a dice roll half the time. Well, this is You're what not with me on this. It's interesting. It, it's you'd have to understand how important a college football coach is. I I totally get it. I get all of it, but it's just how many of them are actually good. Like it's well, basically, it's a recruiting thing more than anything, right? Not really. When you're paying a hundred million dollars for one. Yeah, you're normally paying a hundred million dollars for a really established coach that can change the program's culture. Well, like for, but so, but he didn't do it. I mean, it can backfire. Any coach can be a bad. It seems fit, like right? it backfires half the time. It doesn't. Any well, you got to look at coaching as a profession. Then how many of these coaches go on to be yeah. great Popoviches? You know what I mean. However, when it does work, think about it. When you have a coach that really hits for a program, think about where he takes the program. He or she, but in this case, it's he. Like, think about the fact that when Alabama, you you don't remember Alabama, the program it was before Nick Saban got there. I remember it wasn't good. Strugglesville, his first year, they, they lose to Louisiana Monroe, right? So Strugglesville, think about the national brand that Alabama is. Think about what that means, not just to the school and to the team, but to the state of Alabama the economy around the area, like the investment for a coach that changes the culture of a program. So how many of those guys are there at this point? How many now? I would say you probably have uh, the guys that are for sure winners. I'd say people you said about Chip Kelly, right? And then he went, you know, he bounced around now. You well, know, here's the, here's now. the thing about Chip Kelly. Chip Kelly is actually a good example of what we're talking about. Chip Kelly built a culture at Oregon, right? He built it. And he had it going in a very specific way with the support from Nike and all of that yeah. stuff. He left to try to take it to the NFL. Did not and work. then when he came back, he's not been able to build that exact same culture at UCLA. Although he has made UCLA into a reputable it's going and better. powerful college football program. So I would say that when it works, it's really worth it. And when it doesn't work, it's all fucked up. And that's kind of the thing with any of those big contracts like that, right? How many in NBA contracts can we think of guys that got a lot of money? But that's thing in the NBA, there's like Monty Williams got an incredible amount of money to coach the Pistons. And it's just like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> right. But there's like five NBA coaches that matter. I mean, there are only five to 10 college coaches that matter. Yeah. And the rest of them are trying to prove that they matter. Would you put Dion on that list yet? Not yet. I would say that he's significant, but he's not quite there yet because in order to matter in college football, I mean, Dion matters culturally, but he has to show like success at Colorado and then like success and in some the game term. management stuff. Like right. yeah, there's a whole bunch of checkpoints. Yeah, we'll, we'll All right. See. So who's number two? So before I get off Texas A&M, I want to say something real quick. Yeah. If Texas A&M were to hire Deion Sanders, the reason why I say it would be the worst case scenario is because with those resources and that proximity, if Dion is even half of who he says he is, they would be a perennial top five, top two team for a long time. Mm. It would be a nightmare if he were to end up at a school like that with those type of resources. Okay. Okay. Um, number two is Arkansas. Oh. And let me tell you why I have Arkansas on the list. Um, Arkansas coach Sam Pittman right now, you know, LSU is locking horns with Arkansas this weekend. Battle of the boot. Uh, Sam Pittman, great guy, amazing guy. Uh, been a great coach for Arkansas. K.J. Jefferson's the quarterback. He is a veteran there. It's going to be a tough game for LSU. Their ties there. Jerry Jones is a huge Arkansas alum. Oh. And okay. uh, they actually gave Deion Sanders an interview, from what I understand. Um, and 
him going there, it would be greased for him to go there. It would be the SEC school, one of the SEC schools most likely to give him a shot, right? So there's some familiarity already there. Sam Pittman and Arkansas haven't quite gotten to the point that you would want them to get to. They've been competitive for the last couple of years, the last few years, but they haven't really made a real run in the SEC West. And it doesn't look like this season is going to be the season that they do, they do that either. They just lost to BYU last week. We'll see what happens on Saturday with LSU. But it doesn't look like a program right now that is a very powerful program. And that's a, a state with a, a great football tradition. So Dion going there would be a huge deal. And Jerry Jones could probably make that happen for Deion Sanders. You know what I mean? Would he have to live in Arkansas? He would. <laughs> <laughs> see? See, See that was a, a joke just for you because you're from Louisiana. <laughs> I, I know you. I had to do that just for you. He, he would. He would have to live in Arkansas. The only right. reason, the only reason why I don't see that happening is the reason you just named. I don't know how culturally that fits. You know, in Arkansas, I'm going to call it a major city or major major state. Yeah, but I like the people in Arkansas. I have a lot of time when I go. I'm up just there saying to watch he's he's a very famous like. Wealthy person. I just don't see him like shacking down in Arkansas. Well, Nick it just seems unrealistic. See, and this is another thing you should understand. Last thing I'll say before I move on to the number one, the the charm of the college town also is Alabama's is, different. You can't compare Alabama to anything. That's the most important college football program, and now everything. it is. No, right? but it was it's, from it, the past. Bear historically, this, but like you can't tell me that places like Oxford. Places like even Baton Rouge, Starkville, all of these towns have their own charm, and the coaches build community there. Bill, they build community there, so it could okay. happen. Okay, number one, and this is by far to me the coach that should be looking over his shoulder the most. Okay, Billy Napier at Florida. Oh yeah, I was waiting for this one. Billy Napier at Florida. Some belt Billy is a great coach. Anybody that spent time around him knows that he's a process-oriented coach. He is a coach that is able to inspire his guys. He's pragmatic. He's all of that stuff. Florida wants results. They started this season with a loss to Utah, and it completely deflated the fan base. On the Deion Sanders front, Deion Sanders is from the state of Florida. I'm aware. Fort Myers, Florida, right? Yeah. It's probably the home of the fastest human beings in America, Florida. Just speed everywhere. With how they like to play at Colorado, with how they like to, to put pressure on defenses, like to have speed everywhere. Just imagine a Florida team with Deion Sanders at the helm. And then also, man, if you guys think he's got Boulder rocking, yeah, what would happen in the swamp? What would happen in Gainesville? the type of national notoriety that that program has had traditionally, that would be an incredible scene. An incredible also, scene. It's his out for getting out of Colorado if he actually wants to leave, which who knows? He might want to stay there for 20 years. But if he left Colorado and he bounced again, the, nat the natural narrative would be, I'm from Florida. Like It was always where this was going to end up. I want to come home and I want to, want to coach a team in my state. Come home, coach a team in my state. It seems like his relationship with Florida State right now, a team that's actually obviously riding high. I don't have to tell an LSU fan that. It seems like his relationship with Florida State now is kind of icy. So it also would grind their gears a little bit. 
to have Dion in Gainesville, a lot of things. The reason why it might not happen is Florida might be good. Mm. They just beat Tennessee at home this past Saturday. Obviously, the loss to Utah was a setback, but Graham Mertz looked really, really good in the the victory at Tennessee. The running game looked fantastic. The defense stopped Joe Milton and Josh Heupel's offense. They actually might be good, so this might be a moot point. Billy Napier, who a lot of people think is on a hot seat, based upon the performance we just saw, might not be might hot. Not, might not Maybe be it's hot. warm. Maybe it's like it a might, lukewarm Might be seat. warm. But I can tell you one thing. If the season goes on and they get splattered by Georgia and they drop a couple, you know, that Missouri looks like they might be better. If they drop one at Missouri or, or the seat gets hot, look for Dion to Florida, Dion to Arkansas. Look for those two teams right there to re- be really in the mix for Deion Sanders if somebody wants to pluck him. But Colorado's got to keep winning. You know, well, everybody, everybody's high on Dion right now. The Pac-12 is one of, if not the best conferences in all of America. And Colorado has a hell of a schedule coming up, Bill. Like a hell yeah. of a schedule, man. I think it's more fun if he stays at Colorado for a few years because you're basically creating a powerhouse team from from thin air that we didn't have, right? Florida, all these teams you mentioned, Florida, Arkansas, like they're all teams that are in the mix anyway. But Colorado was like, when was, when was the last time people were having Colorado conversations? Very long time. And, I will say this. And it's, a, it, and it's in a cool place. Like it's in, like Denver's, the Denver area, I can see having a cool college football team. That's kind of fun. I don't know. It's fun that they play on the West, on West Coast time. I like having more West Coast teams. I think it depends on a lot of things. If Dion is able to be successful, and we're jumping the gun right here. We are. But anytime there's a successful young whippersnapper coach, other coaches start looking over their shoulder. If Dion's able to be successful there, the question is, can Colorado be a traditional football power? Can they spin like the SEC? Can they win like the SEC? or the Big 12, the conference realignment matters here. You're going to look at a situation where you're going to have two mega conferences and the Pac-12, you know, might not be the conference that you want to have one of those major, major, major heavy hitter teams in. You might want to get in the game from a playoff standpoint and from a power and television standpoint. You might want to get in the game in the SEC or in the Big 10. So it just depends on how things shake out for Deion Sanders. If he thinks he can do that at Colorado, we don't know yet. It's working fine right now. Can we bring in Saruti quickly? Saruti, you there? All right, Saruti, Van just laid out his five teams, and you know way more about college football than I I did. Which one of those five got you the most excited? Oh, it's Florida. Definitely Florida. Yeah, I mean, I feel like 10, 15 years ago, that Tim Tebow, Urban Meyer, Florida run. I mean, they were the most terrifying, you know, I don't, they weren't a dynasty, but, you know, small run of anybody in, in, in college football. And they just had so many dudes rolling through there. And that was kind of pre the Saban era too, or at least like the, the, the dominant Saban era. And they were kind of the closest, scariest thing to what Nick Saban's done at Alabama. So I think if you can get that going again in Gainesville, man, that would be a, a pretty terrifying situation. The only other one that I would say that you didn't mention that would be Probably the only other place that would be worse than Florida State, you know, Deion Sanders, a former Florida State guy, going to Florida would be going to Miami. Oh, uh, we've been talking for the last 10, 15 years, plus however many years, whether or not Miami could ever come back and be the U again. 
Uh, he seems like the guy with the bravado. He seems like the personality that can make it be the U again and make them be the number one team in the country and the scariest team to play. I mean, certainly the the recruiting ground there in Miami is probably the most fertile one in the entire country. The question is, you know, is a, is a former Seminole going to, you know, cross those lines and, and become a hurricane? I, I doubt it, but that would be the one where I'd be like, man, if you went to Miami, that's a perfect cultural fit and it's a perfect, you know, obviously, you know, reviving one of the, one of the, the long lost programs that hasn't made its way all the way back yet. So I would say Miami, that Florida, but Miami is the one, the, the one wild card. Yeah. Fun, true. fun place to live for a, a rich former superstar athlete. Miami. Absolutely. The a only few of them have enjoyed it. Miami could definitely could have made this list, especially over maybe like a Baylor. I just wanted to throw in a Dave Miranda thing to show my college football knowledge. But the only reason why I wouldn't put Miami on, I, I really <laughs> do think that, um, that Miami is on, in, on uh, like headed in the right direction. I, I really do. But like Dion in Miami, that, think about what that would mean. Think about oh the you coming back with Dion. It would essentially be 1989 again. I'm not oh even talking God. about the second iteration of the U. I'm talking about that first group of you people that were hanging out with Luther Campbell and yeah. the hot tubs and all of that and the camouflage and everything that's going on. Like that would be crazy if he ended up there. That's a good one. All right, Van. I really enjoyed Van's top five. That was fun. We'll have to do it again. Good to see we you. Definitely, we definitely will. Uh, you can hear Van on the rewatchables, by the way. He was on the Bronx uh, Broxdale this week, so that was fun. Thanks, Van. Bye, guys. All right, Howard Beck is here. He's officially joined the Ringer. He's working for the Swedes. Uh, you've, you, we've like been parallel universes, and we've cried, and it's just kind of never worked out. And now it's it's finally happening, and you're with us, and we couldn't be happier to have you. Uh, I, I couldn't be happier. Great to be here. Great to see you. Great to join you. Um, I'm. I said it the other day on Twitter. I'm just freaking psyched, jacked. Uh, I can't even come up with enough adjectives. Uh, this is great. Um, ready to jump in. Uh, love the Swedes. Uh, I learned what fika <laughs> is this week. I'm really great. excited about fika. <laughs> well, what, you're going to do a lot of stuff for us. But one of the things is uh, when the season starts, hopping on the real ones on Monday with. Uh, Logan and Raja, which you did last year. And I thought it was one of the most entertaining podcasts I heard all year. So I'm excited for Thank that. You. All the other stuff, you're going to pop on all the different pods. And we'll see. As always, it always evolves here. But one of the things, you're jumping in right before this season. Austin and I talked about a little bit on Tuesday. This season that just, it just has all become about this guy's unhappy. This guy might go here. What's going to happen with this guy? And I, you've been covering this league for a long time. Do you ever remember it being like this dark heading into a season? That's, that's a good way of putting it. No, Bill, I don't. Like we've gotten used to, almost too used to, frankly, over the last five, 10 years that superstar discontent is now just an ongoing theme of the NBA. If it's not Anthony Davis forcing his way to the Lakers, it's Kyrie forcing his way from Cleveland to Boston and then from Brooklyn to Phoenix a couple of years later. It's Harden forcing his way for, from Houston to Brooklyn to Philly to now who knows where. Like, I don't it, – it's fine, right? We have gotten accustomed since the decision, capital D, in 2010 to the idea that stars have the authority, the leverage, uh, and are empowered, as we use that, that term all the time, to, to dictate their careers. And that's fine. And I think most people have gotten used to that. We don't have the backlash and the vitriol accompanying that that we did 13 years ago. But right. free agency is not the same thing as forced trades. And this is where I think like, the league has let this kind of get away from them. I, I, I don't know if let is, is the right word. I don't, Bill, I don't know if there's anything the league can really do about it. 
but it's not good and it's not slowing down. The number of forced trades over the last five to 10 years outstrips anything. The league always fell back on this, well, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar back in the day forces. Okay, cool. Yeah, he was the only guy. And then there maybe there was another one 10 years later. This, to your point, is an annual occurrence now. And we're going into a season where two of the greatest players of the last 15 years, or certainly the last 10, are both awaiting trades that they have demanded, that they've demanded to only one destination. Yeah. And 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 are facing down teams that don't want to do it because neither of them feel like they're going to get fair value back. And so, yeah, we're going to go into media days with just nothing but this saga hanging over not just those two teams, but kind of the whole league. What do you wish we were talking about on media day? Like, <laughs> if, we, if we were the czars of media day, we're like, let's talk about positive stuff. Like for me, it's Jokic, it's can Tatum get over the hump with the Celtics yeah. and become like the guy in the Eastern Conference. It's can Miami get over the hump, this great run they've had. You know, yeah. they're with the Warriors, Chris Paul is going to be on the Warriors. That's going to be kind of bizarre. Like, yeah. let's like there is fun stuff, but it just feels like we're heading right toward Giannis. They're on the clock. Harden, where's he going to end up? Like this Philly situation. If you're saying yeah. I have a bunch of Sixers fans in my life, none of them who I wanted to talk to about this on this on this podcast. We're, we're the nice balance. We're we're detached. If you're a Philly fan, this is like a catastrophe. Like, what are you looking forward to this season? You have unhappy James Harden. The Embiid trade is looming. Um, I guess you're talking to yourself into maybe Nick Nurse, but can you remember a weirder situation for a team that was really good last year? Well, how about this? If they do trade Harden and they trade him for, let's say that that they can't get fair value, um, it will be the second time in the last less than a year that a viable contender, the first one being Brooklyn, essentially, I don't want to say voluntarily blew itself up, but blew itself up before it ever got a chance to even see if it could win. I didn't yeah. believe in the Nets last season as a contender, Bill, but like there was the outline of a con- contender. They were on a really, uh, you know, on a hot streak before Kyrie forced his way out. And who knows what might've happened if they'd stayed together. So uh, now, listen, you alluded to it earlier. So this is, I'm going to my, tw- I can't believe this 27th season covering this league. It is the first time in my memory, you're a historian of this league. I think it was the first time in history that I'm aware of that a viable contender blew itself up in the middle of a season. Not an off-season, retool, tear down, whatever. Middle of the season, you have the tools, you have the players, you have the talent to go a long way, maybe even win a championship, and you blew it up. And now the Sixers are in that position now, not of their own doing, really, although I guess we could argue the details of what we believe may or may not have happened between Daryl Morey and James Harden and all this. But yeah, like you to have the reigning MVP, Joel Embiid, and one of the greatest scorers of the last 10 years, one of the greatest players of the last 10 years, and James Harden, and a really great young player in Tyrese Maxey, and some good role players, and to not be able to feel good about going into to training camp, if you're a Sixer fan, that blows. And, well, especially with you know, how the East is kind of more wide open than ever this year, right? And you would think Philly, yeah. if they were just happy, would be one of the people I think that would get picked. Yeah, look, if, if the James Harden situation had never happened, he's just under contract and and happy for once. When's the last time James Harden was happy? There's a question. Um, yeah. If James mm. Harden... Wait, hold ever, on. 2018? Like, like be- 2017? They, maybe maybe the minute before Chris Paul pulled his hammy. Well, can Houston? you define uh, happiness? Like, like, uh, like three months of happiness? Because I'm sure he was happy for a week in certain times. Uh, yeah, but sure. Like, yeah. Here, here, 
He was happy going to the clubs when he was forcing his way out of Houston. <laughs> right, that's true. That was a fun time. It was a fun time for James Harden. Maybe not so much for the Rockets or their fans or anybody else, but it was good for now him. They, they, not only did they forgive him, they wanted him to come back. That was weird. That, but, I mean, did they? Uh, I'm, I'm starting to feel like that's kind of an open... Although, you know what? To your point, a lot of Rockets fans, when the rumors were about, hey, Harden might go back, a lot of Rockets fans were weirdly, in my view, weirdly uh, celebratory about that. I, I didn't. I don't get it. They're very but, defensive about Harden, the Rocket fans. I think they really love the Harden era. I think they think he gets a bad rap, and I think they yeah. want him to come back. But now yeah. they have this great team. They're the great young collection of talent, at least. That's at least something. They don't need James Harden. No, it would have been a weird, um, a weird callback, and a, and just a weird move to make for a young team that is is trying to start something new and to bring in a ball dominant older aging star who's going to take up a lot of oxygen. It never made any sense to no me way. for him or for them. Why does he, why does he want to leave? And still to, I could ask the same question now with the Rockets door having closed months ago. Why do you want to leave the reigning MVP? I mean, seriously, James Harden's at the stage of his career, Bill, where for a lot of guys, look, we, we you know, your, your Celtics team, right? Pierce, Ray Allen, Gavin Garnett. Oh, they got to get the exact right time. They got on their, all their individual accolades and they were ready in their early 30s to just be all about doing the one thing that none of them had done and that's win a championship. James Harden, at the age he's at, this is the moment where you go, I'm okay sacrificing a little, whether that's money, whether that's touches, whether it's stats. And I want to tie myself to somebody who can help get me to the place I've never been. That's what we kind of expect as media and fans of the superstars and and Harden's like no nah, I'm I'm good I'm out of here and I like I know if he goes to the Clippers sure he's joining Paul uh, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard and Russ but like I don't think that's a more likely path to the title than staying in Philly with Joel Embiid and Tyrese Maxey so what are you doing James also Harden? if you're the Clippers why are you doing that you want like another unreliable person. Uh, I don't, you already I don't, have one yeah. of the most unreliable teams possible. You're going to add James Harden to that? I mean, I guess you do it if you're you're free. The Brooklyn point you made was interesting because I agree with you. We haven't seen that before. A team just be like, fuck it, we're blowing this up. On the other hand, the two trades they made were pretty great. You know, that, that KD trade to get Bridges yeah. and all the picks, and then Cam Johnson is kind of a bonus, but they ended up having to pay him. But just... The Bridges plus all the first round picks they got for a guy who's sitting in his mid-30s and didn't want to be there. I, I thought that's about as well as you're going to do, especially watching Bridges and Team USA and stuff. Like, he's a foundational piece. I don't I think he'd be the best player in a title team, but he could be the second best player, maybe. For sure. And if you're the Nets and you now are armed with Mikhail Bridges, Cam Johnson, a young Nick Claxton, and some other interesting pieces, Dorian Finney-Smith types, and, and this boatload of picks from the Suns, plus you've still got some other, well, I think they do still have a Dallas pick and maybe a Sixer yeah. pick or a swap or whatever. They've got enough. Like, they're one of those teams you got to keep an eye on. Like, I, I'm not a big believer, and we'll get to Embiid, I'm sure. I'm not a big believer that we should start the Joel Embiid trade machine yet. I mean, it's natural. It's obvious. We can't not talk about that speculatively. But I also think it's like maybe one year too soon on it. But they're going to be near the head of the line all these picks and, and the Suns picks are going to be really attractive. Remember once upon a time, it was the Nets picks that went to Boston in the Pierce yeah. Garnett deal that were looked at as gold because everybody was sure the Nets were going to fall off a cliff and those picks were unprotected and they would be worth a boatload. That's what the Nets now have from the Suns because everyone's expecting within the next couple of years, Durant will wear down, maybe retire. 
the suns will fall off a cliff. No one expects Beal to stay healthy. Um, yeah. And, and so they're in a position between the picks they have and a lot of their ancillary players that are interesting. You know, I, I don't know what it's going to take to get a Joel Embiid done or, or God forbid, a Giannis trade. I, I, again, we're, I think we're a little early on it, although Giannis is the one who stoked these fires. Um, I love this, by the way. It always becomes this, why is the media speculating about all these guys? I think we just spent 15 minutes on it. <laughs> but, they, but they, like, this is my we didn't start the fire speech. Apologies to Billy Joel. Like, we didn't start this, Bill. Like, the players have been the ones, first, all the superstars leaving in free agency, starting with LeBron in 2010, and it opened the floodgates. It started this whole era. And then that has now advanced to forced trades. First, it was forced trades with a year left, the Anthony Davis example or the Paul George one when he was in Indiana. Now it's forced trades with multiple years left. Now it's forced trades five minutes after you opted in, James Harden, or five minutes after you signed or a year after you signed the extension, Damian Lillard. Like it, it we didn't start the fire. Like the players created this. And all we can do is react and now anticipate because that's part of what we do in the media is like, well, in an era where guys become discontent and have the leverage and the ability to force their way out, why shouldn't we be uh, attentive to that and have our, our, our radar up? Because by the way, the whole league does too. This is the other one. I'm not just trying to you know get us off the hook with the fans and listeners right now, but look, the whole league acts this way. The whole league, if you are the teams that don't have Giannis or Embiid, you are plotting to get Giannis and Embiid if, if there's any way possible. So we, we're more reactive to this than I think a lot of readers want to believe. I see people getting cranky about this on, on Twitter all the time, but like we're not creating this, this atmosphere. We might talk about it too much. Maybe we are right now. There's nothing else to do right now. It's September 21st. Like, you know, we're, we're waiting for the, for media days, but well, one of that, I, I honestly, I hate talking about it, but it's hard to talk about this upcoming season when there are all these variables in play with like some of the best teams, you know, yeah. like Miami went to the finals last year. Their team's worse. They kind of have to get Dame Lillard. Yeah. You don't know if he's getting traded there. Like this week, there was a story about a mystery team in the East and people spent the whole week trying to figure out who's the mystery team. Was it Toronto? Is it Chicago? Oh, if it was Chicago, what would they give up? And doing that whole thing, we don't know who it is. Um, but if it's not Miami, then that opens up all these questions. Well, what's Miami going to be this year? They're just going to have Jimmy and Bam and Kyle Lowry and expiring and Hero coming back after they try to trade them all summer and they've lost their depth. What are they going to look like? And then you look at, uh, like, if Dame went to Toronto, well, what's to what is Toronto with Dame? What would Toronto have to give back? So it's almost like the season can't start until that piece gets figured out. And then the Giannis Bucks thing is just real. I mean, they, he's one of the best players of the last 25 years. And this happens sometimes, where sometimes you go on the clock. You Were you covering Kobe in the mid-2000s when he got mad at them? No, I was already in New York at the Times by then, but I covered it from a distance. Like I did cover the Kobe meltdown where he was basically like, get me out of here. He, he demanded the trade. Um, back then, boys and girls, uh, teams said, no, we're not going to. Now they did. They had a lot of discussions, right? There was the, oh, yeah. he was almost a bull. He was almost a piston. He was almost all these things. But yeah, um, that that got ugly for a little bit. But they, you know, to their credit, they they held firm. And then they traded for Pau Gasol six months later, whatever it was. And Won a couple more championships. Well, that's part of the problem with this Dame trade that it's, and people have been writing about this and talking about this week, so it's not an original thought, but if you know other things are coming, 
do you want to go all in on Dame trade? Like if you're the mystery team or if you're like the Nets and you're like, oh, they got to get rid of them and they don't like the Miami offer. We have a chance to get Dame. But, you know, these other guys might be sitting in the back and it's just, the league is so weird now. The turnover is crazy. And, you know, I'm lucky enough. I have Tatum and now Jalen Brown and these two guys that we've watched kind of grow up and we get to keep them. And those guys almost feel like more of an anomaly, an anomaly than what we grew up with, right? Jokic is like this endeavor. They get Jokic and Murray and they get them for a long time. Maybe Dallas will have that with Luka, but uh, Golden State has that with Curry. I I personally like that more. Um, I wonder what the league thinks. Like if you put, if you pour truth serum down Adam Silver's throat or put a few drinks in him, what would he say? Because on the one hand, everyone's talking about this all the time and they're talking about it during the off season when nobody cares about basketball. On the other hand, I don't think any of us think this is good for basketball. So what, what do you think he would say? You know him. Um, you've now put the image in my head. I'm trying to think of like Adam, like slumped at the bar, like drunk on like <laughs> shots of Jaeger. Adam, wake up. I got a question. <laughs> <laughs> Adam, how are you going to fix superstar trade demands? Uh, I, yeah. Um, I, there's a part of me, Bill, that, that what I understand about Adam is this much. And we've seen a lot of this in various uh, ways over the last... 10 years. He certainly is a guy who loves the idea of a 12-month league. He and the league have leaned into every aspect of that, whether it's the Vegas Summer League, you know, exploding into a, a thing that didn't used to be a thing, right? Um, free agency, trade demands, <laughs> all this discussion about transactions and all this, like, it keeps the league in the ether, in the discussion all the time. I think Adam loves that on some level. I think the league office loves that. But is, is, there, is there a tipping point in this whole discussion, I I kind of think there instinctively I think there is. I mean, you and I came up at a different time, right? Uh, where if you're a fan, you're a fan of the team, and you might be fan a fan of uh, of the best players on that team. But if that player like crapped on your team, wanted out, left, went somewhere, okay, they're a traitor now. They're they're done. Right. I'm done with them, right? Uh, or or you were heartbroken when they were gone. And we're in an era now where you know our 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 younger friends. They say they root for players, not teams. I'm not sure that that's a, an absolute. I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but like we're in an era where people seem to to be like, if you're a Dame fan, maybe you're happy for him no matter where he goes. Um, it's like being but, a Beyonce fan or something. It's like, yeah, I follow Dame wherever he's going to put out his albums. I mean, in his yeah. case, he actually puts out real albums too. But yeah, I, I know <laughs> what you does. mean. But it, to me, though, the 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 whole mystique of sports about fandom, about rooting, right? Seinfeld said you root for laundry. What if the laundry doesn't matter anymore, right? Like that at that time, like the joke was, oh, you root for laundry. And if you, as long as that guy's wearing the laundry that matches your city, your team, you root for the guy. But now it's not even that. The laundry is irrelevant. You're rooting for the player in the jersey, period. Yeah. I, d I do think there's a limit to it. I do think what's happening in the last 10 years is somewhat destabilizing to the league. And I do think at some point, this is a hard thing to prove, Bill. But like, I think at some point there's a there's a reckoning where there might be more of a backlash where fans say, you know what, I, I'm tired of these. Like, it's not through free agency. Everybody understands free agency, but maybe fans at some point are going to say, I'm tired of a James Harden or a a, a Bradley Beal, a Kevin Durant, a Kyrie Irving, a Chris Paul, twice, um, on and on and on, forcing their way out. And if you're a fan of the team that that guy was with, if you liked that player, 
it's it's excruciating every time. And especially if you're a fan of a small market team that has a really hard time ever getting those guys again. Like if Giannis decides to leave Milwaukee, whether by free agency or forced trade, whatever it may be, they're not getting another Giannis for a very long time. And look, they got their championship and a lot of fans might just say, you know what? It's cool. We're, we're like, you, you got us to the promised land and we wish you well. But I just don't think it's great for the league overall. I do think it's destabilizing and I do think it's like the fans are the one constituency we never talk about. Oh, good for the players that they have fully empowered themselves to take control of their careers. We can all get behind that. Um, you know, the the league is fine. The league's still making a boatload of money. They're going to, you know, sign a new TV rights deal sometime in the near future, broadcast rights deal. They're fine. Everybody's fine. The only people who maybe aren't fine, I feel like are the fans. And, we, and that's the constituency that nobody really takes into account. It's funny that the people in my life who love soccer and basketball, and they're used to this from the soccer, the movement, and just the way people bounce around. And I, I don't think they notice it as much. And sometimes I wonder if we're the old guys that are just like, ah, this isn't what I grew up with. And maybe we this might is be. just what the, this might be with the league is. Like, I'm in a fantasy league with fantasy football league. I think we have 11 other teams, right? So it's a 12-team league. At the end of the year, 11 of us are super unhappy and we hate ourselves for being in this league, right? And then you're like, the one guy who wins, you send him some texts. He wins some money and it's like, okay, cool, I won. Um, you're supposed to be unhappy in the NBA. There's 30 teams. 29 of them are going to be unhappy at the end of this season. Like, this isn't going to go right year after year. And I think what's changed is the reasons people seem to become unhappy. To me, like, sometimes they don't add up. Like, like you said before, what is James Harden unhappy about? Because he didn't make the All-Star team? Yeah. Like, you're on a good team. You're playing with one of the best players in the league. You've been in different situations. And it's like, well, Philly wasn't honest with me. Well, you opted into the contract. If yeah. you wanted to go, why, why didn't you opt out? Well, because I would have made less money. Well, maybe that should tell you something, you yeah. know? And you go on down the line. I just, I wish there was a way, and I've said this before. I wish there was a way to reward the players that stay in a situation for a long time, that the team could, the team and the player could benefit from that. So Curry's in Golden State for, what was he, 09? So this would be his 15th year. Yeah. Maybe there's some tax advantage to that. And maybe, you know, maybe his contract only counts 75% on their tax instead of 100. Or there's some sort of advantage that would make him want to stay because he's like, I want to win titles. The longer I'm here, the better it is for my team. And that makes me want to stay here more. But I, if, I just don't know if they'll ever do stuff like that. What? What? Right, wait. What if you're at a Steph Curry type level, Tim Duncan, Kobe, Dirk, and you hit a certain threshold? You have to be a superstar already by whatever de definition. And if you hit a certain threshold, you get equity in the like, team. Yeah, that would be interesting. Oh, you get like a third of a point or something like that, or if yeah, so, fifteen I mean, that years in a, a team. Yeah, why not? Like. The, right now, the only reward for staying put is like you get the no trade clause, right? Or, and you, you know, you accrue a lot of money, but you can get that anywhere. And bird yeah, rights that's don't a even fun really, yeah. I like you know? that. One. Do you but feel it, like, do you feel like the league is desperate at all with that? Like, there, do you feel like, a, do you sniff a air of desperation with some of these moves? Like the way they're trying to get this Vegas thing going, which by the way, both of us will be in Vegas and it's going to be really fun. But <laughs> do you feel like they're, kind of grabbing for straws here to try to make this a 12-month league, like you said? I, I think they've already achieved it in terms of the conversation, but the the backside of that that got neglected, that they're now trying to like 
you know, suddenly fix on the fly is that the regular season keeps feeling like it matters less and less. And so now we've got like Adam Silver, I feel like is the only person in the entire NBA uh, community who seriously wanted the in-season tournament. There may be some others, but he's fought for it, fought for it, fought for it. And he finally has it. Why? Because they want to make the regular season matter more to crack down on, on player rest, load management. They're trying to make the regular good season luck. matter more. Good, good luck cracking down on that. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know if either of these things are going to work, Bill. And, you know, like I hope they do for the league's sake. Like, I, I want to see the league uh, be healthy. I'd like to be proven wrong about the in-season tournament that I remain very skeptical of. Um, but I'm just not sure any of this stuff is going to work. And if it doesn't, well, then what? So on the one hand, you've made yourself a 12-month-a-year league by leaning into player movement and transactions and rumors and all of that. And gambling. Um, and so people are talking about the league all the time. They're engaging with the league on a whole bunch of other levels that they never used to. And it's a 12 month league. Great. What about the the year or the, the months that you're actually playing? And especially the months that, that are, you know, November through March before the playoffs yeah. arrive. That's a, that, that seems to me to be a problem for them. And I wonder how, like, I, I, I you know, heard your pod a um, couple of weeks back discussing the TV rights deal. Um, what if it's not the double to triple of the old deal that they're right. expecting? Um, what if, what if all of this instability, I don't know anything about this stuff, but like, what if all the instability in the broadcast world, the RSNs, the unbundling, all of it, what if it does, uh, create a, a problem for the league in terms of the, the value of the next rights? deal? It's still going to go up, right? It, there's still, yeah. they'll be making money. The question is with all the changing habits is, are people watching enough? And, and when does that finally come back to bite them? What do you think the ideal length of the regular season is? Huh. I'm not a big cut the regular season guy. Like I, I do, I agree with anybody who like, it's impossible not to agree with this, right? Even though we grew up on the 82 game season, it's been there for our entire lives and long before we were watching the league. Um, like it, it, it's, it's hard to imagine the league any other way. And it's hard to imagine um, how we'll discuss. It's already hard enough to, to compare eras. What yeah. happens if you now have an era where, Oh, those guys only played 54 games and, the, and they played 82 for 50 years. That part's weird, but it's, it's, it's impossible to argue against for um, quality of product reasons, health reasons, longevity of player reasons, all of that. It's hard to argue anything other than it should be shorter and they're never going to get there. And just to be clear to people, it's not just, oh, well, the owners will never agree to it because they'll have to like sacrifice money. No, it's a 50-50 split more or less. The players right. would sacrifice it too, and they don't want to cut it either. So the players are not exactly like, oh, we should we should cut to 66 games. I think that 66, we had the lockout season that was 66. That was like, that was kind of fun. It had a lot more momentum. Just lopping off 16 games actually did something uh for the the just the uh, the urgency. Yeah. It's hard to get the urgency, right? That's the thing the NFL has. So you have the urgency uh because of the shorter schedule overall. I just don't know how the NBA ever gets there. Yeah, my my ideal, I think, would be like 70, 72 range. I think you can cut 10 pretty easily. And I think that would solve some of these issues. And I, I think it would make the product better. They're going to yeah. make so much money from this next TV deal that, you know, I, at some point you got to make decisions based on what's the best for basketball, not what the money decision is. We're going to have guys making right. 70, 75 million dollars a year. Like, yeah, at some point you got to care about the quality, too. Yeah, this idea that both the owners and the players would lose a lot by cutting the number of games. Well, one, there's the scarcity argument, right? Well, you can charge more per game, whether yeah. via TV rights or via uh, tickets to the game. 
So there's that argument to counter it. I don't know the economics of it, but that sounds plausible. And there's also just the fact that, to your point, if the if the next broadcast rights deal is going to double or triple potentially the old one, all right, you're gaining enough that you could afford to maybe lose a little at the other, right? These things might balance out and you're and still- And maybe old, you do old. expansion. Maybe you add two expansion teams and that gets you another, you yeah. know, 10 billion bucks that you could split among everybody. I, I just, I find it hard to believe Watching from afar, which is year after year, they're trying to figure out all these ways to get these guys to play more. And nobody's just looking at the obvious issue, which is there's too many games. The, Lessen the, one the number still. of games and make it make it so that it's harder to skip games because it yeah. could really impact you if you're trying to make the playoffs. The one hitch, though, Bill, is is this. And I, and I believe this. I've heard other people say it, and I, I, I buy this. All right, at 82 games, now guys are only averaging like whatever, 67, 70 or whatever because they're you know, rest, load management, whatever. If you cut it to 66 or to your 72, how do we know they're still not going to blow off eight to 10 right. games? <laughs> right. Like, like they're, they're going to, whatever the schedule is, the guys who want to rest or, and I should make this point, the teams that seriously believe in load management are still going going to say, well, we think you will be better in May if we rescue these two games here in February. So I don't know that fewer games will actually produce a, a higher attendance rate <laughs> among the yeah. players. Um, we'd like to believe it would, but I'm not, I'm not certain of it. And so, like, because think of it this way, too. One of the other things that's been a hallmark of Adam Silver's tenure is they have made the schedule much more efficient and player friendly, right? They, they took out True. a ton of back-to-backs. Those are way down. You don't have four games in five nights anymore. All-star used to be all-star break used to be like four or five days. And now it's an entire week. Um, they've done a lot to try to make it more player friendly and health friendly. And we still have guys only playing 67 games. So I don't, I just don't know what the answer is there or if there is one. All right. We're, I'm leaving a lot of meat on the bone because we have a whole season and there's lots of stuff to, for us to talk about. But before you go, give us your greatest Kobe story. Just give us uh, your number one, your best one. Number one? Your best one, your go-to Kobe story. Because how many years you cover him? Uh, seven years as a beat writer in LA. And then, you know, obviously covered him from afar yeah, yeah, yeah. for a while. But you were day-to-day with him for seven solid years. Seven solid years, yeah. Best Kobe story, oh man. Come on, one's um, got to jump to mind. I, I use this one only because I, I think people have too often missed the the part of Kobe that was um, empathetic, personable. He put on the Mamba mask for so long that people didn't understand that there was actually like a, a pretty thoughtful guy behind it who wasn't always looking like a maniac on the court and cursing people out and cursing out his own teammates and all this stuff and having, you know, it'd be championship at the cost of everything else. Um, early in his career, it's like my second season on the beat. Might've been my first season. They're practicing every day at LA Southwest College in, in a, you know, uh, so-so part of LA. They didn't have their own practice facility. Back then, like teams didn't all have their own practice facilities. Um, and the Lakers were not among the first, by the way. Um, so we're going to this, this, this community college and you go and you park in a lot and you walk in. There's like 20 doors leading out of this gym. On every side, there are double doors. So they players could leave to avoid us anytime they wanted to. And we're, we'd be in there. Del Harris would, would you know, let us in with a good 40 minutes left. And actually, we actually got to watch practice back then. Del was great to us. But then inev- inevitably after the uh, practice breaks up, you go and get like, you know, Derek Fisher, or Robert Ory, Rick Fox, whoever. And if you're not 
careful if you're not watching yourself, Shaq or Kobe or somebody you really needed might be sneaking out behind you because there were all these different doors. Some went to the training uh, room or weight room. Some just went straight out to the parking lot. So it was easy to miss guys, to lose them. And so the the story I love to tell, because this is one of the the nicer Kobe stories I can tell, was just sitting there talking to, I think it was like Robert Ory. My back is turned to the the main way out. um, And I just hear this, hey, Howie. And I turn around. It was, it, 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 was, it was, do you need me today? And I turn around and it was Kobe, like checking in before he left. Like, do you need me today? Like, what? Huh? Um, no, no, I guess we're good. Like, it's fine. Go ahead. Like, we'll get you tomorrow. But um, he was really thoughtful. And I, I know like people immediately go to this cynical view of like, ah, he's just trying to butter you guys up or whatever. This was a pretty young Kobe. He was like 19, 20 at the time of, of this particular story. And I think at that time he was just looking for connection because if you've read a lot of the stuff about Kobe from back then, you know that he had a really tough time being so young on a team full of veterans and a team that really revolved around Shaq, not just as a player, but as a persona. Shaq was so larger than life, always the life of the party and guys gravitated to him and Kobe couldn't manufacture that and was a little bit more to himself back then anyway. It was, I don't, maybe not quite a wallflower, but at times wallflower ish. And so you know, I, I'm I'm 10 years older than him, but even among the beat writers, I think I was maybe among the ones who were closer in age to him. And so, um, yeah, he was he just he he just liked to talk. He just liked to just like shoot the shit back then, back when we could just shoot the shit with guys because we didn't have to worry about Twitter or anything or anybody else like hearing it and running off and like saying, oh, Kobe just said you could just have human conversations and get to know each other a little bit. Actually, that reminds me of another one. You, you want me to go one more? Yeah, one more. Um, they used to still practice sometimes at the forum on off days. When I first started covering them, they were still at the forum. Um, you know, that arena in winning time that y'all have yeah. seen um, for the younger <laughs> listeners? That existed. Um, and I walked in one day and we could just kind of plop down. They also weren't real officious about like who sat on the seat. I could just like plop down in the locker next to Kobe just say, hey, man, what's up? How's it going? And there's um, golf is on, like the Masters or something is on. And he says, how, man, do you golf? I'm like, no. And this is back when like, you know, Tiger Woods is at his peak and players are all NBA players were just starting to think really become like big into golf. And I said, I said, no, no, not, not, not really my thing. Uh, what about you? Do you golf? And he goes, nah. I could never, I could never play anything that I couldn't master or something like that. I never said that I could, that I couldn't perfect or something like that. And I'm like, and you could perfect basketball. And he was like, absolutely, man. Absolutely. <laughs> Kobe loved the word. Absolutely. There was a lot of things that were absolutely, which is fitting. Like he was kind of an absolutist about basketball, about himself, about winning. Um, and it was like, holy moly. And that was one of those conversations. Again, just a quick footnote to that. That was one where, Recorder's not rolling. My tape recorder's not on. My little old micro cassette recorder. My recorder's not on. My notepad's not out. We are just two people just talking. And so I didn't jot it down. I'm telling you this from memory, but like a couple of years later, they're in the finals against the Pacers. This is their first finals. Kobe has that incredible uh, game four. That's the game one four. Shaq fouls out. Kobe comes through in overtime it, and it's his Jordan moment. This is the moment where everybody said, oh, wow, that kid that we thought is a little Jordan-esque. He just had his moment like this. This cinches it that he he really is worth all the hype. He can live up to it. And so now we got to write an off day story. And I think it might have been on whether it was a travel day or they had multiple off days. And so there's no availability. So you're writing. What else do you got? What's still in the notebook? And the first time I ever told that story about the, the golf remark was 
the day after game four or the, the, the day after the day after game four, when I had to write something off of just what's left in your notes. And yeah. I had, you know, it was this fun little insight that I could save and use later, which I feel like in today's media environment is really hard to do. When do you think that ended? What, like late 2000s? When do you think it, it officially shifted? Just the dynamics of, of how we cover. Yeah, just like, like just yeah. being around dudes in a way that, yeah, you know, wasn't scheduled and... It probably, it, it was eroding all throughout my time in LA um, yeah. because players were getting more and more people in their ear, PR people and their agents and everything. And, and the, the people who would be managing them started to grow. So there was, that was part of it. Some teams started getting a little bit more strict about access or just not as, as helpful. Um, a lot of things started to erode over time, but really, honestly, I feel like it's mostly the social media era, right? Yeah. Like, Twitter comes along and it's just this big noise machine and it has, it is complicated a lot. Like I thank God I'm not a beat writer anymore. Right. Like for the last 10 years, I have had the luxury of being the quote unquote national writer. I can parachute in. I covered the Lakers for seven years, the Knicks for close to nine with a quick detour to the nets That's 16 years of being a beat guy. And it was hard anyway. It was hard back then. I, I really sympathize with and feel bad for the, the beat writers today who are on that treadmill and with a lot more on their plate because of the demands of social media, the demands of the internet, um, the the demands on players and how much how much harder it is to get to know them. I yeah. used to be really envious, Bill, of like the guys who covered Showtime when I was in LA and I came to the Laker beat in 97. And so if a Steve Springer came in on a given day for the LA Times to, to, to sub in for the beat writer and Steve had covered Showtime, he's written a lot about that era. And he would regale us with these stories about what it was like back then when they're on the same uh, air, airplanes and they're on, maybe right. they're on the bus sometimes. And I thought we missed the golden era for sports writers. We missed it because I was born too late to get to really enjoy the kind of access and to really get to know guys where most of the time they're talking, they're not on the record. And then eventually they got to get on the record. Oh, by the way, let me open the notebook. And so I thought I'd miss the golden era. But I, I think about my experience, especially the seven years on the Lakers, which I appreciate much more now from a distance. Back then, I was just too stressed yeah. to, to to really appreciate what I was experiencing and and what a privilege that was. I appreciate it more now, but um, I, I also look at it now and I, I look at what beat writers today have to deal with and how much harder it is. And I think, wow, in comparison, I had it good. I'm the, I'm the Steve Springer, Scott Osler in this story now. So right. it's wild to see. All right. Well, we'll keep talking about the old days every once in a while when you pop on. But Howard Beck, great to have you at The Ringer and uh, enjoyed the time today. Thanks. Yeah, great to be here, man. Thank you. All right. That's it for the podcast. Thanks to Van Lathan and Howard Beck and Danny Kelly. Thanks to Steve Cerruti and Kyle Creighton for producing. Don't forget, big FanDuel boost coming this weekend. I'll be tweeting it out so you don't want to miss that one. And I will see you on this feed on Sunday with Cousin Sal after week three. Looking forward to it. Enjoy the weekend. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG. 
in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. You can call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona. Call 1-888-789-777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. 1-800-GAMBLER.NET in West Virginia or 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York. 